Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode two in the new season of the Working Audio Tools podcast with our first guest of the season. We're excited to get this gentleman on board. I personally have learned a wealth of information from him on from his YouTube channel. I know Paul is a, Paul is a big fanboy as well. Uh, so Paul, I'm going to let you do the honours and introduce <laughs> our affable guest. Right, okay. This week we have probably the audio geeks, uh, the, the biggest audio geek that I know anyway. Uh, many people think I'm an audio geek, but this man, <laughs> this man just takes a sword and chops my audio geek head off. <laughs> Everybody knows who this man is. If you don't, then let me introduce you to Mr. Dan Worrell. How are you doing, Mr. Worrell? Are you doing okay? Are you doing marvellous? I'm great, thanks. Yes, and thanks for that lovely introduction. <laughs> That's all right. Now, um, for me this week, I would love to chat about your audio engineering journey because I know that you had your own studio I know that you were into live sound like Ed uh, for a long time and I find it interesting that the two years are from Sheffield which is just amazing how things can come back full circle uh, but small world a very small world uh, so if you don't mind I'll kind of leave the stage open to you and um, tell us a little bit about how you got into the audio industry if I'm to start right at the beginning it's probably at the age of 16 when I discovered that my school would let me borrow the four-track tape recorders that they had for the for the music students, and I could even take them home over weekends. Wow! And I had a, you know, I had my guitar, uh, I had a little drum machine. Uh, I borrowed my sister's bass guitar, and I could, you know, put little compositions together uh, at home, all on my own, just being creative, and really enjoyed it. Um, discovered bouncing tracks you know and and building up more complex arrangements you know discovered i could i could record four tracks on the porter studio bounce them in stereo onto my hi-fi cassette deck and then swap that tape back into the machine and have that four track mix in stereo on the first two tracks and two more tracks to overdub on but couldn't really they were still quite expensive those porter studios and very limited in quality so i never invested at the time but that's when I first got the bug, I think, for, you know, the, the home studio side of it and the producing music. That was that was when it kicked off. But um, I, I, I was a guitarist back then. Um, you know, that was my focus. Uh, and that was just sort of, you know, something that I enjoyed as well. Discovered I enjoyed sort of the technical side of it too. But guitaring was my focus. I played in a band. That was what I did. I left school, I got a summer job, which just ha- just took the first job I got, and it happened to be for a small TV production company. And um, my job was literally to be in the office and answer the phones when they weren't. That was it, to my only job description. <clears throat> um, but also, at the time, I took um, a, a sort of sound engineering course. So there's a venue in Manchester called Band on the Wall, still going, refurbished now quite different but really cool venue had different types of music on different nights of the week there was a jazz night a blues night reggae night you know really good quality bands played it was sort of a favorite venue of mine anyway used to go there regularly but they had a room upstairs with another console splits from the stage the idea was originally obviously that it was going to be a studio sort of thing where they could record gigs um but i don't know it didn't seem like it got used very often and they were running this sound engineering courses in there. So it was an old veteran engineer and originally, you know, about a dozen people on this course and it dwindled. So 
by the last couple of sessions, it was just me on my own with this bloke and a console and a compressor. And that was when I first, you know, first dialed in a compressor, first got to know what all the knobs on a console did, you know, that basic introduction to everything. That was where I got it. And just uh, by luck, one night of the week when that course was on, I had to get into the centre of Manchester from Stockport, where this office was. So I had to leave a little bit early. So I told the boss, you know, is it okay if I leave 15 minutes early on, I think it was Tuesdays or whatever. <clears throat> and he asked why. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm learning how to be a sound engineer. And he clocked that and put it together with the time while I fixed their electronic typewriter, which was still a thing back then. <laughs> and uh, then he, he offered me a job as a live sound engineer over in Sheffield at Meadow Hall, um, where they were running the Meadow Hall TV facility, which was, um, <clears throat> there was a big, big TV screen in the Meadow Hall Oasis, the food court bit. Yeah, uh, and I they did live that. shows, live shows every day, you know, with this so che- cheesy local radio presenter who really wanted to get into television. Um, <laughs> uh, and he was wandering around with a radio mic and a completely unsuitable PA system and but then on weekends there were bands playing, so you know I got to mic a string quartet, or and that was my first sound engineering job, and it didn't last for very long, but uh, you know it was a start. And then they axed the live shows, and that all stopped, and uh, I was in a band by then and focused on that until I stumbled into a venue just opened the Boardwalk. You might know it, Ed. Played there many <coughs> times. Many the, times. The, the, bo- the Boardwalk opened up, um, and didn't have a sound engineer and we were booked to play uh, and I turned up and there was the venue owner trying to do it himself and not having a clue so I sort of did the sound check and then left him to you know jockey the faders while we did the show and then at the end of the night they offered me the gig so I was house engineer for the boardwalk for a few years. Which years um, were they then? Right back it, it'll be the end of the 90s I guess when it first opened with I think it was the mucky duck underneath. End of the 90s, anyway. Probably just a bit before I was getting on the live scene. I think I did my first gig there maybe when I was 15. Right. Which would have been 2001. Way to make me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we won't ask your age, Dan. It's okay. We won't ask you. <laughs> yeah, for uh, 40. Cough. Cough. Yeah. Uh, I, I've just sort of dated myself pretty much there anyway, haven't I? I guess. But. Um, <laughs> Was it was was it still the Tax Scorpion console there when you when you did your oh, first gig? I was a drummer, assuming I'd be the next <laughs> Travis Barker at, at that age. I it, how things work were not on my radar for many years. Well, that, yeah, that was what I learned on anyway. A Tax <laughs> Scorpion with some horrible old point source boxes that were falling apart and and the boardwalk, and that's where I cut my teeth really. Wow. Um, uh, and then you know, gradually I came to terms with the fact that I wasn't going to be a rock star. And as we um, all do, <laughs> the, the, the 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 live sound thing became less of a part-time income and the proper job for a good few years. Yeah, as it as it did for me from playing drums professionally, merging into live sound. When you realise you don't have to rely on singers to do a gig, you can do them on your own and freelance, <laughs> and then you spend all your money on equipment and. Uh, Get fed up of it and sell it all and spend all that on studio gear, which is what I did. <laughs> so, so in terms of um, your live sound days, I've, I've I've always found this interesting when I speak to Ed, who's now getting into mixing, having came from um, a live sound background. 
Did, did make it sound like I started last week. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> um, it might sound like it, but I didn't. <laughs> but um, what I find interesting is how Ed said he took a lot of his live sound approach into his mixing approach. Um, when you started mixing, was that something that was a bit of a hurdle for you, or did you find that there was a lot of stuff from the live sim days that really helped you? Yeah, it was definitely helpful. Um, it was a really solid grounding. There was a, a lot that I had to learn when I moved to more studio. Uh, th things like, you know, compression uh, is just used so differently in live sound. Mm. It, it's you, It's generally just used as a way to control unruly singers' volumes and even out the dynamics of bass players. Uh, and not much else. I know, you know, uh, I won't name them, but I know very successful live sound engineers who still don't really know how to use a compressor <laughs> properly. You know, they're, they're, they'll go for the ones with the auto settings so that they don't have to worry about attack and release because they don't really know what it does. <clears throat> and that's fine in a live sound context. You can actually do really good live mixes without knowing too much about what compressors yeah. do. <clears throat> and that's very, very different when you get into mixing pop and rock music you know you need to the compression is a big part of modern <clears throat> modern music you know you can't really get that sound without knowing how to use compressors it reminds me a little bit of having a, a classical music training as a musician there's a, a, a lot of stuff that's really really useful you know the ear training for example very very valuable and then there's also some stuff that you need to sort of unlearn a bit or or a lot of gaps that you need to then fill in when you, you know, if you go into pop music and writing your own songs and things like that, you know, when you go to classical music, they, they don't they don't teach you why the notes fit together, mm. you know, unless you explicitly study composition. But if you're learning to play the violin, for example, which I did uh, as a child, you know, you, you, you taught the scales, you taught how to read the music, you, you're not taught why those scales are those scales, you know. And they're also taught in quite a weird way, you know, I don't know if either of you, I'm getting kind of blank looks here. <laughs> I don't know if either of you had a classical music training. I didn't know. I did play violin for a year and uh, it sounded like a strangled cat. So <laughs> yeah. I was told to take up percussion. <laughs> That's how bad it was. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It's useful if you're learning to read classical music by rote from the page. I, I, I once had the misfortune to uh, I witnessed a, a um, <clears throat> improvising seminar for classical cellists. So the Royal Northern College of Music, don't ask me why I was there, something to, to do with my sister. She was a, she studied classical cello. And it was a, you know, a classical musician with not the faintest clue how to approach improvising, telling a bunch of other classical musicians, basically the message was, just play whatever you feel like and don't worry about the fact that it sounds awful. <laughs> and then they launched into it. And, and, and So they played jazz then? <laughs> yeah, that, like that. That's the thing, though. If, if, they had, if they had been playing jazz, they would be playing to some agreed framework, yeah. some agreed harmonic framework. Mm. You know, yeah. There's these jazz standards that everybody knows. And you know, somebody starts playing a standard chord sequence and they all know it. And, and, you know, if you, and they, they'll trained to recognise a 2-5-1 chord progression and they're, oh, okay, I know where I am. And, you know, uh, and to the untrained observer, it might sound like a chaos of noise, but it, it isn't. And they, you know, they're listening to each other and responding to each other and in a way that this classical guy was completely oblivious to. I feel like there's elements 
of that, you know, it's like these compressors, they're just for controlling the volume. And, and then you get in the studio and you realise there's a whole load of other mm-hmm. reasons to use compressors um, and a whole lot of other ways to control the volume, indeed. Uh, you know, uh, you've got automation, which you can't do alive except with your finger on the fader, you mm-hmm. know. So, so, yeah, there was a lot that I had to relearn. But then there, there are good habits that it can get you into as well. So even just like cable management mm. in the studio, you know, you, you get trained. If you're doing gigs, you keep your cables tidy and you get punished for it if you don't, basically. When something goes wrong and you're trying to fix it, you will really wish that you'd laid everything out nicely and labelled everything properly and got everything shipshape before the show because it makes things a lot easier when something goes wrong. And likewise in the studio, if you lay your, if you've trained yourself to lay your cables out neatly and have everything, you know, in a sort of logical, use a sub box to go to that thing that needs lots of channels running so you don't have loads of cables running across the floor, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's really good grounding. Um, Even apart from the ear training, that was also, obviously, it it was live sound where I I learned to use EQ, you know. Um, You know, that's more or less the same from live to studio, fitting a mix together with EQ, you know, you can take all those skills from live and you can apply them in the studio just as they were really. Um, but compression is a big thing. So saturation, obviously, you know, uh, mixing live sound, especially on grotty point source boxes, you know, the idea of adding extra distortion is something that, yeah. you know, <laughs> it <laughs> didn't really occur to me until, <laughs> you know, until, until I was mixing big shows on digital consoles with nice line arrays, you know, and then, uh, and then it was different than maybe I thought, well, maybe I could do with a bit more warmth, you know, but, but in the, in the early days on that tax scorpion at the boardwalk, that was never an issue. So consciously adding distortion, that's something that I had to sort of learn about when I got into studio mixing, but it, it you know, it wasn't just, um, uh, most of the time that I was doing live sound, I also had a, a hobby home studio as well, you know, and that sort of gradually grew from a really basic, uh, digital porter studio originally with an atari st and a hardware sampler and then you know a pc and an interface and all that kind of stuff and i've kind of come full circle now i'm back in a home studio again um although it's a bit nicer than my old one was but um, so you, you write and produce your own music and do you release that i have been more recently for years i was um yeah i would just tinker around at home and quite often not finish the mixes and you know it was just a bit of fun, really. It was more tied in with the YouTube stuff, to be honest. Uh, I've I started producing more and more of the example music for the videos than just going ahead and finishing it and releasing it. So now I've got, yeah, there's quite a bit of stuff out there. I've been distro-kidding it. So, <laughs> oh, uh, what a seamless link that is for an advert, Paul. <laughs> DistroKids sponsors the Working Audio Tools podcast and 30% off your first year subscription can be found in the podcast show notes and the YouTube video description. Hyperfollow is the easiest way to place all of your content in one single place, making finding all of your content super easy for your audience. Upload artwork for your release, edit the information and apply links to all of the streaming platforms your music is going to be available, which of course on DistroKid is potentially all of them that exist now and even in the future. Add social media buttons so your audience can find you and your latest music video. Creating a beautiful landing page with a preview of your music is easy with Hyperfollow. Hyperfollow links can be created for all of your releases and it enables you to create pre-save links 
for your audience to pre-order your music before it's released. This link is shareable on all of your platforms and a great way to promote your next release only with DistroKid. So Dan, can we share a link to your music in the podcast show notes and YouTube description? Uh, I'm sure you can, yeah. I mean, it's in all the usual places and it's just released under my name, just Dan Worrell. Um, all right, ladies and gentlemen, go search. I will try and find a link and put it in the uh, show notes and the description. So I, th- I think my most popular release so far was I Won the Loudness War. Yeah, I think that one was, wasn't it? So, yeah, I don't know how many speakers I've destroyed with that so far. But <laughs> What was what did you get to again? What was it? It was, it was plus lofts, wasn't it, that you ended up at? Plus 2.3 <laughs> integrated. Who's got higher than you or um, Tom, Tom Lord Algae claims to have? <laughs> Clay claims to be the only guy to get into positive. No, that's lies. Well, he's, that's obviously wrong, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I don't know, but I've yet to... I've yet to see an example of a louder mix. If anyone's got one out there, let me know. But as far as I know, uh, I'm I'm the loudest. And and can, and can I ask? Was it uh, there were certain like not myths, but like people were talking about it. Did you see to get that? Was there something like you had to individually limit each sample point, or am I just completely taking something I've read online and it's complete bollocks? No, it, I didn't spend that much time on it um i wasn't individually editing there's much easier ways to achieve basically that people have been asking me what what's the trick how did you get those loudness numbers and i I mean that part was easy i just made sure every single sample was full scale right and there's a number of different ways you could achieve that wave shapers the tricky part was getting that to resemble a piece of music that (laughs) someone might want to listen to that was that was the tricky part (laughs) And I th- and I think you made a very good point that at the end of the day it was it was basically an exercise to show look I can look, I won the loudness war but at the end of the day you know it's ludicrous to think that you know that we would want to have our music that loud and I remember you you, you did a a video talking all about you know like the the needlessness of you know um, the loudness wars and you know how important dynamics are to music and just how imp- yeah. how important it is to you know, there's. I always find it funny how we take so much time into recording these beautiful performances and getting the most dynamics that we can, so we could feel the track, and then we just needlessly <laughs> limit it to like minus six luffs, and you're just like, wow, this is now completely squashed, and you can lose a lot of life. It's insecurity, mm-hmm. I think. I agree. That does it? Pe- people are aren't confident enough in their mixes or their music, and they think those extra couple of dB will make it better. Mm-hmm. And I, while I, you know, I understand the motivation and I've been there, you know, but it doesn't work, you know, just make it better. Correct. Really, that's the only, that's the only way to actually make it loud in the real world mm-hmm. is to make it sound so good that people want to crank it up because ultimately they've got that volume control. They can always override you no matter how how loud you make it at source. My plus 2.3 LUFS mix doesn't get listened to any louder than anybody wants to listen to it. Correct. You know, they're not sitting there suffering, you know, going, oh my God, this is, they turn it down. <laughs> or maybe they do for the first second before they get to the volume control. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> even before we had automatic normalisation, we had manual mm-hmm. normalisation. You know, um, if a song was too quiet, you turned it up. If it was too loud, you turned it down. If it absolutely slapped, you'd turn it up louder and that's what you're going for. That's the goal. That's where the gold is. Make it slap and they'll crank it loud and you've won. Mm-hmm. 
that's that's what it comes down to. And you know, I think it's particularly so with the DJ crowd, who seem to be the biggest culprits at the moment. Yeah, the biggest fans. <laughs> yeah, and 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 my yeah, my online nemeses, <laughs> the, the DJ community. What I've what I've detected a lot in the comments is this sort of insecurity that if their volume drops for, you know, even 30 seconds of their set, that people will walk off the dance floor yeah. and they'll lose the crowd. Uh, you know, and it, it's not like that. You know, uh, you don't need to be hammering it all the time to get their attention. And quite the opposite, really. They're there to dance. That's what they want to do. You know, you can bring it down. They will still be on the dance floor. And then when it gets louder for the build, it'll have so much more impact. Yeah. Um, and I'm speaking as, you know, I'm not speaking as an old boomer. It's like I, <laughs> I, I grew up in Manchester in the 90s. I went to the Hacienda, went to all sorts of illicit parties in, you know, unconventional, unofficial venues. <laughs> I, I know what makes a good party. And back in those days, it was proper vinyl. And mm. we didn't have, you know, square-waved, brick-walled, waveforms at minus three LUFS going into the PA. And guess what? It was still really loud. Yeah. And it was still really exciting. And everyone was still on the dance floor sweating with their, you know, mouths gurning and their eyes popping. You know, <laughs> it, it was, it, it all worked even back before we had L1s, you know, yep. it, it it was, it was still banging. You, yeah, you don't, you don't need to do that. And it'll all sound more exciting if you don't. And I think that's what a lot of people misunderstand when I uh, when I rail against the loudness wars. They think, oh, you know, you just you're just an old boomer and you don't <laughs> understand the modern aesthetic of everything being loud. And <clears throat> and it's not the case at all. I like aggressive music. Uh, you know, ever since I was a teenager, I've liked loud, in your face, aggressive music. You know, I went to see Napalm Death live, uh, and and I still love that. You know, it's great. And the production that goes into some of these super loud mixes is absolutely impeccable because you don't get to those loudness figures without taking really good care of the arrangement and the mix and making sure that everything fits together perfectly so that you can slam it that hard in mastering. But my point is, if you did all that, but then didn't slam it with the limiter, it would be even more awesome. Yeah, I get it. It would be even more aggressive and even more in your face and it would hit even harder. And I think that's what people misunderstand. I'm not trying to make the music tamer and safer and nicer to my old <laughs> fatigued ears. I'm trying to tell you how to make it even more in your face and even more aggressive and, and even more what you want it to be, you know. And even when you think about, I always find it interesting when people talk about, you know, needing to have, you know, such limited mixes for loudness. And like you were talking about the Hacienda, but we even think about Northern Soul. Like there would be people that are doing Northern Soul nights and Northern Soul would be on loop and it would be all nights like five six seven sometimes eight ten hours like massive massive nights and you know people were dancing to that all night long all night long and I, even when i listen to a lot of northern soul stuff it's the dynamics that i love about it i love the fact that you know it's got that dynamics it's got that groove it's got that feel and as you said if you want it, want more of it just crank up the dial and just make it louder yeah, how much of the arrangement would you say contributes to the mix, or how how vital is the arrangement to helping I mean, a, helping shape a mix? It's uh, it's fundamental. Couldn't be more vital. Every problem that you run into in the mix is determined in advance by the arrangement. 
and there's only a limited number of ways you can fix those problems. You know, a perfect arrangement pretty much mixes itself. Mm. And the ultimate example of that I would give is a, a symphony orchestra. If you haven't experienced that, anyone listening, if you haven't yet experienced a good orchestra playing in a good hall, go and do it at least once in your life. It's just amazing experiencing that, you know, polished, produced perfection just coming straight from the stage, directly from the instruments themselves, not a transducer in sight, except the one that maybe the conductor uses to talk to the audience mm. if he does, probably doesn't, he or she, I should say. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And that's just purely down to the arrangement. Now, when you, you know, pop music, the production is so, you know, you, 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 will, you will never really get a mix that just needs faders up like that mm-hmm. in a pop environment but you will definitely get arrangements that seem to mix themselves they're just effortless you don't have to fight anything everything already fits together perfectly everything's already in its right space you know when you push the faders up it already sounds like a mix and you're just at the polishing stage whereas there are are other mixes where you're fighting for maybe days Mm -hmm. before you get to that stage where now okay the basics are in place and now i can just do the do the little fine touches and the polishes you know uh, and yeah, yeah oh, it's absolutely integral. The, the arrangement is, in some ways, it's it's crazy to separate them. However, we have to because they are such different skills and mm. require such hugely different skill sets. So you know, I mean, if you can do both, then more power to you. But it's absolutely reasonable, I think, to separate those into specialities. However, the mixer is dealing with what the arranger has given mm-hmm. him or her in exactly the same way that the mastering engineer is dealing with what the mixing engineer has given him or her. Uh, You can't really separate them. And by arrangement, are you including orchestration instruments coming in and out, production? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. when things happen, you know, huge amounts of EQ moves can be avoided by simply not having those two clashing instruments playing at the same time. That's a good point. Uh, So, yes, absolutely critical. And it, uh, it extends to also the choice of sounds if you're, producing in a more electronic context or the way it was tracked if it was more of a live band you know that's sort of part of it if you're just talking about the mix stage you know if you're being sent a multi-track to mix then all of those contribute to how difficult or easy it is to put it together i mean in the same way that if you were baking a cake you know the quality of the ingredients you were sent would would have a big effect on on the end result and how easy it was to get that end result I mean, in Scotland, they deep fry everything anyway, so that's kind of irrelevant. <laughs> this week's featured plugin of the week is Voca from Sonox, a vocal processing plugin designed to encourage users to explore and find their own unique sound without using presets that have no context of the singer's voice, room, or microphone. Although Sonox have not emulated any specific hardware for this plugin, they have taken inspiration from classic compressors. The auto input section adjusts the gain for the optimal input level for optimal vocal processing. The compression section gives us two parameters to play with. Stabilize acts as the threshold for the compressors. Squish morphs between a smoother Opto-S compressor on the left-hand side and a faster, more FET-style compressor on the right. These compressors are in series, so central positions go through the faster compressor before hitting the slower compressor, and you can balance how much of each is compressing. The saturation algorithm enables fast tonal and saturation balancing. And the soften section on the output helps alleviate harsh resonances and de-essing. To give you some context, I'm using Voca to compress my voiceover audio in these featured plugin sections and the DistroKid segments. 
Blame it on the whiskey. Blame it on a bad weed. Blame it on the only thing you've ever seen. Run and tell your mother. Blame it on your brother. Blame it on the only thing you've ever heard. Blame it on the whiskey. Blame it on a bad weed. Blame it on the only thing you've ever seen. Run and tell your mother. Blame it on your brother. Blame it on the only thing you've ever heard. Blame it on the Blame it on the whiskey. Blame it on a bad weed. Blame it on the only thing you've ever seen. Blame it on the whiskey. Blame it on a bad weed. Blame it on the only thing you've ever seen. Run and tell your mother. Blame it on your brother. Blame it on the only thing you've ever heard. Follow the link in the description below to the Sonox website for current promotions on the Voca plugin. Dan, I've got a question that I think will be uh, interesting to get your perspective of for our listeners, and I suspect Paul may have even had this on his list of questions. Speakers or headphones for mixing? Which do you prefer and speakers. why? Okay. I'm always on speakers. I, it's what I'm used to. I, I know my monitors intimately been using them for years that's just where i feel at home i haven't invested in a really nice pair of mixing headphones perhaps i'd use them more often if i had but you know i've got dt770s for tracking um which are you know they, they sound nice but they're they're not particularly flat and accurate yeah. and you know reference for mixing i took a break from live sound back at the sort of in in, in the 2000s and I was MIDI. I was a MIDI programmer for about three years. And for the first two years, I was working in the office. And then I switched. I worked from home for a while. But while I was working in the office, I spent nearly all of that time wearing headphones. And I kind of got sick of it, if you know what I mean. You know, I think I could mix on headphones if I had to, um, especially if I invested in and got to know a really nice yeah. pair of headphones. But I haven't done that yet, and I have no reason not to mix on my monitors, so that's what I do. Yeah, and that's a great um, point. That's a great point, because I think that's always the thing that I try to say to anybody that asks me is, really, like, if you've got a monitoring source that gives you good results, you can trust, gives you good translation, then there is no reason to change that. There's no reason to change something that works. There just isn't any reason, so... I think, like, again, you made a good point that a lot of the times it could be out of necessity. So for me, a lot, for many, many years, it was, headphone mixing was necessity. I didn't have a well-treated room. I couldn't really have speakers. I had neighbours, and I got used to mixing on headphones, and that's where I am now, and I invest a lot in, um, like, expensive headphone setups. But at the end of the day, I think that there isn't any, there isn't any rules. It's just as long as the end result is right subjectively right um then really that's all that matters um and i think yeah. it, it interests me how 
people argue about the minimalist of things and I'm like, what does it matter if somebody's mixing on headphones or monitors as long as the end result is good? That's surely just all that matters. I've always found that interesting. I would say, I mean, especially these days where there is a very strong possibility that the music you're mixing will be listened to binaurally, you know, earbuds or whatever. So you could you could make an equal argument that mixing on speakers is wrong mm -hmm. uh, because you're not catering, you're not hearing the binaural mix that many people will be. Uh, or you could flip it and say, you know, if you mix on headphones, you're not getting the uh, <clears throat> the proper stereo yep. image that people listening on speakers, one way or the other. I mean, uh, what I will say is I mix on speakers, but I will usually do a binaural check mm -hmm. before I before I sign off a mix. Um and I quite often make no changes. I just, you know, I pop on a pair of DT770s usually and listen back on those. And if it's if it sounds fine, usually it does. Um, you know, that's it. But I, you know, I do feel like it's important to check just yeah, in case something is really different, and you might want to take account of that. But um, knowing your monitoring is probably more important. Uh, definitely. Um, and obviously there are advantages in taking the room out of the equation uh, if you're mixing on headphones. So, yeah, swings and roundabouts. I mean, I've been in studios with high-end, you know, very expensive monitoring systems that I just didn't get on with at all. Mm -hmm. um, didn't know them, wasn't tuned into it, you know, uh, and then I've got the tracks back to my my setup and gone, oh, Christ, didn't, didn't know that was going yeah. on there. You know, obviously there is a certain minimum standard that you need in the same way that if you're learning to play the guitar, you need an instrument that can be tuned properly and that stays in tune up the neck and things like that, you know. So you need a reasonable degree of accuracy. But then once you've got that, it's just getting to know it and getting really accustomed to the sound and listening to as much reference material on it as you possibly can. That really helps, I think. In terms of references, do you have any like set of references that you listen to before you mix because I know that's something that Ed's kind of got himself into is he's got like a, a reference playlist on Spotify and he'll listen to that before he mixes to kind of give his ears a little bit of a tune do you do anything similar to that or no I don't have a, a standard thing I will either just listen to anything that I think is well balanced or more usually I just start fresh you know in the morning with fresh ears and when I have a break it'll just be quiet you know I won't listen to anything louder than the kettle <laughs> for a you know 10 or 15 minutes or so while I, while I make a coffee and you know come, then come back to it and that's usually enough for me to have reset my ears that's what I've found I don't really use reference when I use references I don't try to copy the mix yeah. mm -hmm. and I have sort of tried to do that way back in the past and I found sometimes it was helpful and quite often it I wasn't agree. I agree um, it's literally it's just in fact i made a little video about it it's it's just a like a palette freshener mm -hmm. just listening to something that has a reasonable spread of frequency content right from the lows to the highs and that just sort of rebalances your internal head eq you know because your brain your brain compensates for what you're listening to so when you, if you're listening to your mix for hours and hours and you know gradually the mid-range builds up and you've got a big bump at 500 hertz, say, but you don't hear it because you've been listening to your mix. You know what I mean? What you need is not so much a mix to copy. You just need to reset your internal EQ. You just need to listen to something that's flat frequency response 
<clears throat> that go, oh, okay, and and you'll probably listen to it initially, and it'll sound really scooped because yeah. you've got used to your your mid heavy mix, uh, and then once it's sounding like you remember it sounding, you're safe to switch back to your mix, and you'll hear it as it really is again. That that's how references are valuable to me. Not so much copying every element of the mix because it's like if you're doing that you need to pick a mix that's fitted together the same way that your mix yeah, is fitted together. Yeah. And if you already know that that mix is fitted together the way your mix needs to fit together, that means you know how your mix needs to fit together and you don't need the reference, if if you see what I mean. <clears throat> so, yeah, that's really only the only way I use references. Um, it's just a known, it's a, it's a mix that I know, that I've listened to loads of times, possibly one that I used to use to blast through PA systems back in the day a mix that I know intimately. I know that it's, you know, re- relatively flat in frequency spe- spectrum, by which, of course, I don't mean flat at all. I mean pink noisy yeah. sort of flat. But, you know, <clears throat> I know that there aren't any weird spikes or holes or anything in the spectrum. It's just a good, solid representation of music that I can use to reset my hearing and move on. Speaking yeah. of pink noise, was there an episode, Paul, when you mentioned that Pink noise was the equivalent of sniffing coffee beans for a, a perfumier, whatever you call it. I definitely them. didn't say that. I don't know where you got that from. <laughs> <laughs> was that Paul Third After Dark or something? I don't know. God. Um, I think uh, that would be quite interesting to ask Dan this because this is something that I've been kind of playing about with, but I know I realised very quick that, you know, you could it could get kind of pretty destructive pretty quick. Like, what's your thoughts about EQing to noise profiles. So, for example, if you know you were had a guitar and you were like, mm, "This is maybe sounding a bit harsh," and you kind of tailored, say, the high end to something like pink noise, is, is like, is that? Any, have you ever done anything like that, like EQing to kind of noise slopes or noise profiles? I think, yeah, what you just described there is fine mm-hmm. because you started by saying it sounds a bit harsh. Yes, that's... so you've you've started by identifying that there's a problem. So then it's perfectly valid to look at the spectrum of your guitar and look at where there's spikes and you know, because it's harshness, you know you're looking in the upper mid-range. Mm-hmm. So look for the spikes in the upper mid-range, find that frequency, pull it back until it's flatter, and that'll probably be the harshness that you were hearing. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That's all good. That's fine. Where it becomes a problem is if you're you're not hearing the problem, you're just looking at the spectrum yeah. and you're going, oh, that's got a spike there, better pull that back because that might well be the character of the part. That might be where the part needs to poke through the mix and you've just killed that important frequency. So, yeah, the way you described it, absolutely fine, because you started with the problem. You started by listening and you've heard a problem and then you're looking for ways to fix that problem and you're using the the visual <clears throat> metering tools to help you find the problem mm. that you've already heard. So it becomes a problem when when you get the, that the other way around. You know, yeah, I know what you mean. When you're dealing with the problems that you're seeing, that but they're not problems if you can't hear them mm-hmm. as problems. One of my biggest beefs with digital consoles when they first started taking over was the fact that they showed you a curve of your EQ response. Yeah. And I would keep catching myself tweaking the EQ to make it look nicer. It's hard not and to. I like, you know, <laughs> it, 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 but the why, desk can't know, hear the room, so it's almost irrelevant. It, it really really sort of pissed me off. Mm-hmm. It's okay to say that. Yes, isn't it? absolutely <laughs> fine. Yes, yeah. it's the working audio tools, yes. 
really annoyed me that I was making these changes that I couldn't justify in terms of anything I was hearing. It was just purely because, ooh, that curve didn't look right. And without thinking, I would reach over and tweak it and, and slap my own wrist, you know. So, yeah. don't do that. Did you feel like you could hear a difference when digital desks came in over the older analogue desks? And this is kind of a two-part question. Can you hear a difference between in-the-box mixers and analogue mixers in modern productions? No. No, I can't. No. No. <laughs> Basically, put, put simply, the first generation of digital consoles were absolute horrible monstrosities from a um, usability, you know, an ergonomics point of view, uh, as much as, you know, I, I, I don't know, it's difficult to say because generally speaking, you know, every time I got to use like an LS9, for example, it would also be teamed up with a really horrible ropey PA system with, you know, a shitty band in a horrible room. And it is very difficult to say, you know, the fact that I was never happy with what I heard coming from an LS9 might not necessarily mean that the LS9s were shit. <clears throat> but I can say with absolute certainty that they're a complete dog's breakfast from an ergonomics point of view. Really difficult to use, really easy to make silly mistakes on, just stressful and, and hard work, you know. So, uh, you know, when they started appearing, I absolutely hated them. And it wasn't really until sort of the second generation of consoles came out. It was the, the Soundcraft um, VI6 was the first digital console that I actually enjoyed mixing on. And they were great, wonderful ergonomics, faders that change colour to warn you if they're not, you know, not your main mix anymore, for example. You know, and if, if, if you drop the graphic EQ onto the faders, they all go red, for example. You know, it's like a... And just little warnings like that to to let you know where you are and keep you grounded. Just really helpful. And touch screens, of course, that that helped. Sonically, <clears throat> it's difficult to say because the fact that I always had a bad time on those early digital consoles might be because I just wasn't doing a very good mixing on, <laughs> good job mixing on them, maybe because I didn't know how to use them very well and I was slower and more cumbersome using it than I was. But it also might have been just shitty preamps and horrible EQs and, you know, that's what it felt like to me. But the VI6 sounded glorious, really enjoyed mixing on that. A big, nice console like that tended to go together with better PA systems and proper bands, unlike the LS9, which tended to be in small, horrible rooms. Um, it's just the way it went. I, I, I hated digital to begin with, partly because of the EQ thing that I mentioned um, partly because the ergonomics of those early consoles, the sound didn't seem great to me with the caveats that I've already mentioned. But, you know, it was early. It's not fair to judge digital, modern digital, by those standards. Yeah. You know, and I've, it's, you know, 10 years since I've done live sound. They've probably moved on. There's a VI 6000 out now. That's probably even nicer, but I haven't used one yet. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy working digitally and, and mixing in the box, particularly, I think I prefer it, to be honest, to, you know, if you gave me a choice, I I probably wouldn't have, you know, even unlimited budget, unlimited, unlimited space, I probably wouldn't have an analogue console in my studio. But you do uh, have analogue, if I'm right, is it Better Maker stuff that you have? Is that, I don't, I can't remember exactly yeah. everything you have, but is it the Better Maker, is it the EQ and the compressor you have? Or is it just the yeah, I've got the two the two EQs, the, the parametric and the pull textile mm -hmm. and the compressor 
in um, the 500 series format. And and how do you, is that at the end of the chain that you use that or is that like in different scenarios that you use that? Various different scenarios. Um, I mean, the probably best reason to have it is to take it to studios when I'm tracking. Mm-hmm. Really nice to have, you know, a couple of Pultec EQ channels and a nice stereo compressor for the room mics. You know, if I'm tracking drums somewhere, don't know exactly what outboard they've got. I can just take my little rack and I've got a few, you know, got some Pultec EQ for the kick, that kind of thing. Uh, the main reason I will patch it in is for the compressor, actually. There's a particular type of slam I get from the one of the compressor modes that I, I can't quite recreate with any of my plugins. So generally I will load it up when I want. I think that sound's going to work for whatever it is. And it might be a subgroup or it might be a full mix, um, not usually individual channels. Whenever I patch it in and I use it, it always feels like it's doing something magic that my plugins can't do. And it even even applies because it's the, the Better Maker stuff is digitally controlled yeah. um, analog. So there's a plugin to control it. And I usually control it from the plugins right, okay. because I don't have to don't have to reach over and leave the stereo sweet spot, you know. And weirdly, even when I'm controlling the analog hardware from the digital plugins, it feels like I'm doing something extra special and magic by <laughs> patching in my analog chain. However, with the exception of the compressor, which I, you know, I haven't quite managed to match the sound of that compressor with anything in plugin form, but you know, the Pultec EQ, for example, the Pultec style EQ in the Better Maker, every time I've loaded up a plugin Pultec style and tried to match the sound, I've either got you know completely nailed it or got something that's it's just a bit different mm. but you know not necessarily better or worse i have to accept that it's just my perception of it that's yeah. better really and you know i i sometimes i just patch it in because i feel like patching in some analog gear <laughs> and i'm not in a hurry but if i if i am in a hurry i'll use plugins i'll mm-hmm. I'll, I'll won't i won't power it up because <clears throat> i can get so close to everything and even the compression you know it's it's i've got loads of good plug-in compressors mm-hmm. even if it's not exactly the same usually i can get what i want from a plug-in and if there's a, a deadline then i won't slow myself down by having to bounce in real time and all that kind of stuff now i think i think the big question for me that i've always wanted to ask you because this is something that i get quite a lot is how hard is it to understand the technical parts of audio so much and trying to not let that get in the way of the creative kind of mixing side you know like your your gut your that way where you just kind of sometimes just fly off the seat of your pants and you're just like yeah yeah i don't really know what i'm doing but this sounds great um is that something that you kind of struggle with because when it comes to compression you have such a, a vast understanding of compression i always feel like wh- whatever you do you have a very, very vast understanding of exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it. But then I speak to other mixers and they're like, Paul, sometimes you just overthink stuff. And I've ruined a lot of mixes in the past by over-analyzing things and being like, no, 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 I need to do this to do that. And because of this and doing this and that. And really all I could have done was just like done a quick move on a compressor and (laughs) I could have got just as good a sound. Is that something that you have struggled with or something that you can mentally kind of stick in two separate boxes maybe more the more the second really i think a lot of my videos give the wrong impression about how i mix i agree and i've i've tried to 
tried to correct that in a couple of videos, but probably not enough to counter the general <laughs> impression. You know, it, it, like if I release an hour-long video where I'm geeking out about yeah. tiny differences in compressors, and people might think that when I'm mixing, I will spend an hour comparing two mm -hmm. or three different compressors on a kick drum and deciding which one, and, and honestly, I don't. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what I find is the the technical knowledge helps you to not have to think about the technical side of it when you're mixing. Yeah, I know what you mean. You know, the more, uh, the the better that the better that you know your collection of compressors, the more likely you are to reach for the right one mm -hmm. straight away and dial in the right settings straight away and not have to mess about with it. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll probably have to come back to it because mixing's iterative and it should be, you know, it's normal to have to revisit your kick drum channel several times during mm -hmm. the course of the mix because as the context of the rest of the mix changes, the right settings for that kick drum channel change and they will evolve and, you know, yep. that's absolutely fine. You know, those videos that I've done, for example, where I geek out for ages over tiny differences in compression, think of that more like a musician practising their scales. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah getting the muscle memory so that you don't have to think about it consciously when you're actually performing. When you're in front of the audience, your fingers know where to go mm -hmm. and you can think in terms of musical phrases or, you know, chords or which part's coming next, you know, that kind of thing. You can step up a level, you know. Likewise, when I'm mixing, when I hear, you know, oh, I want that kick drum to punch harder and because I've put the time in and, you know, tried out all my compressors with all the different settings, I've got a pretty good idea of which one I need to load up to get the sound that's in mm -hmm. my head. And when I am mixing, I don't, you know, usually it'll be the first compressor I load up that stays on that channel. And it only gets swapped out if it's really, really not doing what I want it to, you know, and, mm -hmm. and then I'll try something else. And maybe halfway through the mix, I'll realise, oh, you know, that's not doing what I wanted. I'll try something else. But I won't be shooting out three or four different compressors. You know, if the first one does what I want it to, brilliant. Bank it, move on, because there's always something else in the mix that needs your attention I more agree. and is more oppressing. Uh, and it, it's important to keep sight of the big picture when you're mixing, you know, and not get, not get sucked into the tiny little details, at least not until right at the final stages. You know, that's the most fun part of the mix. It's when you've dealt with all the problems. It's all sounding absolutely great. And then you can focus on oh, what, what, what exact kind of delay do I need to throw in for that particular word, you know, or, you know, you can focus on the little details. And if you get to that stage in the mix quickly, then you get to spend more time on that fun, creative, you yeah. know what I mean? What's the exact right effect to bring out that vocal line, for example, and, and give it the right contrast and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, don't be worrying about that when your basic mix isn't fitting together right and your, mm -hmm. you know, your guitars are stepping all over your keyboards and your, you know, your vocal dynamics are all over the place. Sort all that stuff out first and as quickly as you possibly can it is my philosophy. Get it to that point where, get it to where it's like a, like a perfect live mix, basically, where I would step back from the live console and go, brilliant, I can hear everything, everything's in its place. Yeah, once you get to that stage... Then, you know, like live, then I would focus on throwing in delays for certain words or, you know, riding the guitar for the solo and that kind of stuff. So the equivalent of that in the studio is those fine little touches that are the fun part, you know. And maybe then I might shoot out a couple of different reverb effects or a couple of different delays if there's something specific that I'm looking for, you know. Don't stress, certainly in the early stages of the mix, just work quickly, choose what you think will do it, dial in what you think is right, 
get it close, move on. You'll come back to it later anyway, so don't overthink it. Yeah, I could, I completely agree. I think um, working fast is probably one of the best bits of advice that I got because as soon as I learned about workflow and you know just trying to get to the end result quicker and not overanalyzing things, things got a lot better and a lot easier. Yeah, I, I kind of fire myself a mental starting gun, uh, if you know what I mean. So what I tend to do, you know, let, let's say I, I've been sent a project to mix um I will actually spend uh, a certain amount of time organizing things in advance. I think maybe that's partly come from my live sound days. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like you, you need to plan out your channel, your, your, your input same. list, and, uh, and, you know, <clears throat> hopefully you've got a stage plot from the band and an input list and all that kind of stuff. And you do your homework in advance so you know what you're going to do when you have to patch the band in for the sound check. Likewise, you know, I would try and plan a session and I would also plan a mix, you know. So if I get a whole bunch of files come in with, you know, often they'll come in with the every single file has got the name of the song and then kick drum on the end, you know. And if I pull all of those in Reaper as it is, then I'll get a whole bunch of tracks with the start of the song name and then it's truncated the rest and, and I've got to solo it to figure out, oh, that's the kick drum, you know what I mean? So I will actually spend some time renaming files yeah, I do that. before I even pull them into Reaper, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> and then once they're in Reaper, I will spend some time grouping them. So I will lay out tracks in my standard... I've got a standard track order which I recommend for everyone, have get all the tracks in the same order every time I so you that. always know where your drums are, you always, <laughs> always know where your that. vocals are. Yeah. For me, it's it's the live, like there's a standard live patch, you'll know this, Ed. Festival um, patch, yeah. Exactly, yeah. You know, kick drum's always on channel one. It's, you know, kick in, kick out, snare top, snare bottom, hi-hats, toms. Every live engineer works to the same template. You could spot the studio engineer that was moonlighting live because he'd have a different, completely different patch list and you're like oh you, you don't normally do live sound do you and usually the show would be a disaster as well when that happened but <laughs> yeah, that's another story <clears throat> so yeah i've just i've stuck with that because that's what i know and that's what i'm familiar with and i will spend all that time before i even listen to it or maybe while i'm listening to their rough mix or whatever but you know before i actually start on the mix i get everything as organized as i possibly can because once i fire the starting gun and i'm working as quickly as i possible the project tends to get a bit of a mess, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll pull up orc sends and I don't necessarily name them and create subgroups, don't necessarily name them, or maybe I name them something which then changes and I don't change the name. You know, it gets messy. <clears throat> and if I don't start with, you know, a reasonable degree of organisation, then it just gets unmanageable. So, yeah, I spend that time, you know, invest the time in advance to get it organised then I fire the starting gun and I try and get to that final stage of the mix as quickly as I possibly can. And to answer that question you fired earlier Ed, about a template, no, I don't have a mixed template as such, generally because everything that comes in is wildly different. So it would take me longer to fit it into a template that I had than it would to build something up from scratch. But I do have lots of saved tracks. It's, you know, it's sort of small sections of tracks. So I've got Orc sends, for example, uh, and I've one of the nice things about Reaper is you can customize things. So I've got a little tool, toolbar above my mixer. I can just press a button and I get a I get a fab filter reverb on a send, or a you know a delay or whatever. I can press a button and get an instance of you hey satin on every selected track just with one click, and they're all linked. You know that kind of stuff helps to speed me up. But no, not a 
not not a standard template as such because yeah everything everything i get tends to be so different that it wouldn't really be worth creating one fair enough speaking of uh, daws do you buy into or believe this idea that DAWs sound different? And I'll link this to my previous question about the difference between in-the-box and analog mixes because there's an artist who's released their second album uh, this week and I'm convinced, as I was the first album, it was recorded in Logic and mixed with all plugins because it sounds cold. There's no way. See the amount of shite you come out with sometimes, honestly. <laughs> I just can't. I just can't fathom. Yeah, I can't comment on that mix. I think it is possible to create cold-sounding mixes with analog consoles, and it's possible to create warm-sounding mixes in the box. Um, and it's really it's what you do with the tools that matters at the end of the day. Uh, I think if it's a cold-sounding mix, then the problem is that it's a cold-sounding mix, yeah, not that it. it was digital, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. People talk about analog sound, and honestly... A lot of the time, I don't know what they mean by that. Mm-hmm. Speaking as someone who grew up with actual analog gear, you know, I mean, do you mean, are you talking about scratchy pots? Uh, are you talking about <laughs> dirty patch bay connections? Is, is that what you mean by analog sound? Are you talking about the crackles and pops of vinyl? There's a guy that pops up in my YouTube feed every now and again, Paul from PS Audio. Don't know if you've seen oh, any yeah, of his videos. He's, he's quite controversial. He's got a lot of stuff, hasn't he? Yeah, he makes hi-fi gear, doesn't he? Yeah, but he, right. he makes videos, and it's you know I've only watched a few of them, <clears throat> and it's been a curious mix. I've seen some videos of him where he's giving absolutely solid information that I can totally vouch for as being accurate, and then other videos where he's he's talking absolute rubbish, as far as I'm concerned. You know, like for example, uh, he uh, I've heard him doubting the usefulness of blind testing. <laughs> Uh, and his, his his reason for that is because, you know, he, he claims you listen differently under test conditions. And I'm thinking, you know, he's he's observed that when he listens blind, his perceptions change. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yep. He's got that correct. He's taken completely the wrong message away from yeah, that. Good. You know, he's taken, <laughs> oh, oh, well, in that case, I can't hear properly under test conditions. And no, 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 no. It means all your preconceptions were wrong. Everything you thought you were hearing was in your head. That's the re- lesson you should have taken away from Correct. that. 100%. <clears throat> so I've I've heard him talking about DSD. Now I I haven't tried recording in DSD. You know, uh, you you know what DSD is like a different way of recording digital audio. No, I've never heard um, of that actually. What is it? You know, PCM audio. Mm-hmm. Basically, you you sample the signal at whatever yeah, say yeah, yeah. forty eight thousand times a second, and you're measuring the voltage level of each of those. So with DSD, it's a much higher sample rate, right? And um you're measuring the rate of change you know so it's just a single bit that flips up or down to say whether the signal's going higher or lower it's supposed to be a sort of purer and more analog way of recording digital audio the problem is you know you need special hardware to record it and play it mm-hmm. you can't really edit it properly without converting it to pcm which, <laughs> which sort of yeah defeats yeah, the whole exactly. yeah. you've got you might as well why not just record it in pcm <laughs> exactly Paul guy, he's he's set up a whole recording studio and a record label dedicated to recording stuff in DSD and releasing it in, you know, one of the SACD, is it? Or something, there's some weird obscure hardware format that plays DSD audio, I think. Uh, and he's absolutely convinced that it sounds more analogue than PCM audio. And I really, really want him to explain what the hell he means by that. Yeah. 
you know, because when I when I record in a studio with an analog console, you will have the option. Every, every signal that's coming from the live room comes into the console, then it goes off to your interface to your to your DAW, then comes back to the console again, and you'll have a switch so you can monitor either straight from the live room or back from the DAW. And you know, I can't hear the difference. I you know when I switch they sound the same and if they don't sound the same i will troubleshoot it to make sure you know, to see whether what well why isn't why isn't that sounding the same coming mm. back from the box as it went as it did going to it and they sound close enough that you know if i'm tracking vocals and there's a bit at the end of a take where the singer says something to me i will sometimes catch me out when you know we, we drop out before the end and then that same recording comes back in and 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 for a second, I think that they're talking to me live, but it's the recording because I can't hear the difference between what's coming. Uh, and that seems to me, you know, that signal coming from the live room into the analog console and straight to the monitors, that's as analog as it gets. Mm -hmm. That's pure analog. Yeah. And I can't hear the difference between that and PCM audio, even at 48K and at 96, you know, even someone with younger ears than me, I'm, I'm not convinced they would have to prove to me that they could hear the difference between what was coming straight from the live room and what was going through the converters. Mm -hmm. So given that, you know, what exactly is different? How is the DSD better than that? I don't get it. I don't, I'm supremely unconvinced and I've kind of lost the thread. What was the question again? Um, I don't know. I think I, I quite like the fact that I think Ed was on about something completely different, but I think, <laughs> I think Paul pissed you off that much. You were just like, while I'm here, right, let's get into it. Um, I can't, Ed, what yeah. was, uh, no, uh, no, it was Ed. It was, um, it was buying into the myth that DAWs sound different. Oh, and yeah, right, okay. Yeah. I, w I would say, I mean, I I've only used a handful of DAWs, um, but I would say something like Universal Audio's Luna does have a depth and a richness to it. It's very subtle, but I've run a mix through both. And there was something. Have you nulled I don't it? Know if it was a lift in the top end, have you nulled it, it was, though? Uh, have you, did you do like a null? No, no. This was literally what I was hearing going from session to session. And right. there's something in Universal Audio in the top end, maybe to do with some oversampling that UA tend to put into their plugins and software without telling anyone. We need a blind test on that one, Ed. And see, when we're in London, we need to do a blind test. That should be a good video, <laughs> yep. right? Because I'll guarantee in a blind test, you won't hear it. I don't think you'll hear it in a blind test. Well, let's meet in the middle of Sheffield. Uh, I can visit <laughs> my parents and we can do this in Dan's studio. <laughs> I would defi definitely start with a null test there. Yeah, 100%. Um, because it is the thing. There are some things, in some ways, you have to learn when not to trust your ears. Yeah, that's a good point. In order to learn when you can trust your ears. Great point. You know, and, mm. and it's also important to remember that, you know, nothing you perceive is real. And in a quite a literal sense, you know, everything we 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 have this functional model of the world in our brains, uh, and we act like it's reality, but it really isn't. Uh, and in many ways, it doesn't bear any resemblance to reality. You know, so is the your sound, middle name Morpheus? <laughs> <laughs> Illusions they they point this out to us. They reveal it. So you remember that dress photograph? Yeah, that went viral yeah. a few years back. Blue, blue and blue and black or white and gold? Yeah, that's. You know, that's because your your brain, when you look at something, you don't perceive the raw data from your eyes. What you perceive has been processed quite intensely by your brain. Your brain makes a judgment about what the what the temperature of the ambient light is, 
and then it corrects for that and only then does it show you a colour. And because that photograph was ambiguous in its lighting, some people interpreted it as the dress being lit in one way and they saw white and gold and other people saw the dress as lit in another way and they saw black and blue. We do similar things with our ears. You know, what you hear is not the raw signal from the speakers. And, you know, an easy way to remind yourself of that is, you know, when you, when you listen to listen to a recording of a band and you're hearing you're hearing vocals and you're hearing drums and bass and guitars and keyboards and if it's a good mix you're hearing those all very clearly separately and distinctly but you're not it's just one well it's two stereo waveforms that you're listening to and all that separation happens in your head and when you appreciate the absolute mind-boggling processing power that is required to do that you know, we can't do that well enough digitally. You know, we can't do it as well digitally. There is, you know, software that will split mixed audio into into vocals and, and bass and drums and stuff. But there's always little art, at least every time I've tried it. There's, you know, there's little artefacts. It's not quite perfect. But we do that pretty much perfectly in our heads. And we can focus on different parts of the mix. You know, we can sort of magnify the bass part by listening out for it specifically and sort of minimise everything else. It's like we're changing the balance of what we're hearing inside our heads mm. just by wanting to, you know. And when you recognise that, the idea that you can listen to the same mix twice and perceive it the same way twice is just crazy. Mm -hmm. Every time you listen to a mix, you'll have a different experience That's of it, true. even if nothing has changed. And if something has changed and you know something has changed, it's just absolute you know, it's logical for you to ascribe all the differences in your experience to that difference, as erroneous as it is. But the fact is, if you just listen to the mix the same again, you know, you would notice different things than you did the previous mix. You would have a different experience. So I think, you know, people need to stop considering that flaw. It's not a failing, you know, we're not, it's not, our ears are not a scientific measurement de yeah. device. We're not trying to accurately measure the difference between two mixes. It's like our ears are trying to work out what that thing actually sounds like when you remove the room and everything else that's, because that's the other thing, you know, we don't hear reverbs because our brain filters it out when you're in a room, unless it's a really unusual space like a cathedral or a cave or something, you know, where you, you suddenly start to consciously notice it. But in a normal room, your brain just filters out all the reverb, all the reflections. You just hear the sound as it is. And it's only when you put a microphone in the room and then listen back to that afterwards, you suddenly become aware of all the boxiness and the resonances and the reflections that were there, that your ears were picking up, but your brain didn't let you hear, you know. So, you know, it's important to bear that in mind, I think, and that when differences are subtle... And when you've got a, a different cue, like you've got, you suddenly you're looking at a different colour interface of DAW, you know, yeah. it's impossible for that not to affect your perception. 100%. Mm. So, yeah, in situations like that, you need to, you, you need to sanity check, basically, do, do an old test. Uh, and if, if they're not the same, then granted Luna's doing something different, fair enough, then I'd start, want, I'd want to know what that difference was, personally. I'd start running sine waves through it and things. But I can't comment. I don't. I don't run Luna. Is it? Is it still Mac only? Yes. So I can't run Luna. Um, now, Ed, can I give you an example? Right. This is no. I am happy again to embarrass myself, uh, just so like I can give context to this. Recently, 
I've been mixing on these. So these are the Hyphaman HES 1000. I can't, I've probably got it wrong. But they're the Hyphamans that I've been using, like two grand headphones, and I've fallen in love with them. Now, when Emra, my good friend Emra, he uh, made a Harman-style EQ for them, and he put it in Pro-Q3. So I was listening to this, and I was like scrolling through. So I was going from zero latency to minimum phase. Zero latency to minimum phase. And in my head, I was like, there is an audible difference. There is an audible difference. And I said to Emra, I was like, what do you use? He's like, Paul, there's no difference. And he nulled the two files. And he's like, Paul, there is no way, there is no scientific way that you could hear any difference. And I was like, I was like, Emra, I'm telling you. So what did I do? I did a blind test. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? I failed the blind test. I, I, There was no difference, but... All because I thought I could hear the difference in, like, I thought the guitar sounded a little bit scratchier in one of the mixes. I was set, and every time I switched it and I knew one which one was which, I could hear it. And then see as soon as I did the blind test, I was like, no, the, the, the null should have been enough, but I needed a sanity check. And as soon as I did my blind test sanity check, the science was right, and the science is always right, and the differences that I heard just automatically disappeared and as as dan said it is amazing how our perception could massively massively skew what we hear and i think that is the whole analog versus digital debate i think that is the whole thing a lot of the times with five ten grand converters compared to you know like kind of interface converters and people saying that they could hear the difference on perfectly matched eqs and uh, if it nulls and you know we're talking like level even like you know minus 80 dbfs nobody's gonna hear the difference if you were to stick any body in a room and done a blind test they're gonna they're gonna struggle to hear the differences so ladies and gentlemen even me myself embarrassed myself and thought i definitely could hear something and it was absolute bullshit so ed i would probably yeah. say that it would be a, it would be a good test though. I think it'd be a very interesting scientific test to get the two up and to have both of the GUIs on and like sit back and you tell me what you hear and then automatically that's going to give me some form of perception or bias and then go right okay yeah I think I can hear it because it's amazing when I find this a lot with analog stuff when people will be like yeah just listen just listen to the punch of this kick hear that punch hear that punch yeah yeah I think I hear it I think I hear it. And then you do a blind test and you put it next to a plugin if it's matched really well and you, it just falls apart. Um, so that's a great thing. I think that's always a great thing to, to mention to people is perception. And it's our brain. It's like, our, as you said, you can listen to the exact same mix without any differences. Listen to the two of them back to back and you will have a different experience because all it takes is for your brain to thought, okay, I'll listen to the, the bass, the click of the bass in this. And all of a sudden, when you listen to the click of the bass, you hear things differently. It's amazing. The brain's a very complex thing, and I try not to. I try not to think about it too much because if there's uh, audio is enough of a brain melt and uh, a rabbit hole, <laughs> when you start getting into the psychology of uh, the brain and how we perceive audio, that's it's not even worth th thinking about. I'm getting getting a brain fart just thinking about it. <laughs> With the producer button. Is a thing, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah. the DFA fader. <laughs> exactly. Um, give them a knob that does nothing but label it something exciting, and, <laughs> and they're yeah. out of your hair for a while. Button. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and and that's a, a, a canny engineer perhaps exploiting a well-known cognitive bias. Mm -hmm. 
in the same way that many manufacturers do to sell us gear and plugins and you know it's it's the way it is the only counter to that is to educate yourself and yeah yeah a, a, an abx test can be a humbling um Barely. a humbling experience <laughs> when you are absolutely convinced that you could hear the aliasing on that plugin you know yep. and then yeah you, you you do the proper check and you realize no you couldn't hear it um but it is uh it's educational i think it makes you a better engineer I to do. be honest doing that it it helps to teach you what really matters and what really doesn't um on that bombshell i think that's a good place to kind of round it off but just quickly uh are, are there any plugins at the moment that are, have particularly or recent plugins new plugins that have particularly excited you outside of the fab filter world you're known for the cable guys stuff is pretty fun i've been using the shaper box plugin quite a lot Time Shaper is just quite inspiring, especially on my guitar parts. You know, you can play play some boring pentatonic solo and then run it through Shaper Box and suddenly it's interesting. It's great. Arturia has been actually getting quite a lot of use. They reached out to me a while back and, and gave me all their plugins and I haven't, I should probably make a video in return because I've, I've been using them a lot and really like them. Their piano plugin is lovely. That's, that seems like all the piano I'll ever need. Um, particularly fond of there's, there's an upright piano sound in there that's just it's really ticks my boxes and there's a couple of electric pianos that are really nice <clears throat> b3 organ the pigment synth uh i is lovely but i haven't had a chance to learn it yet i really want to get into that uh and they've got some nice compressors and stuff as well and a spring reverb that i really enjoy Ooh. that's um that's all arturia stuff yeah, i like the spring reverb that which, is really um, nice i use that quite a lot on yeah cars. I'm still working through the Waves plugins. They gave me all the Waves plugins, and there's just too many of them. And, you know, I use about a dozen, really, and there's sort of about 400 in my plugin folder, and I need, oh, to, loads. Loads. Uh, <clears throat> need to try and work through those and figure out which ones to save to my favourites. But uh, uh, so some of those have been quite fun, quite... Um, oh, I've forgotten what it's called. Oh, is that now. the Rock Pool one? Is that the one that was like, God, had, the, had the wee women on the front of it? <laughs> no, that is. I, I do. I I do like that compressor, but um, it's just so it, you know, it's it's like three to one compression and mm-hmm. nothing else. You know, give me a ratio control, please. Yeah, because it, it 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 isn't that typical very new thing where it's all knee mm-hmm. at all. It's like a conventional compressor. So I don't care what the hardware did. It should have a ratio control in my no, opinion. I agree. But it does it does sound really nice. I have I have found a use for that vocal bus. It was quite nice. DistroKid hosts a range of visually engaging social media promotion tools to help your release stand out from the crowd. Creative and colourful social media cards incorporate your artwork to help your release stand out. These are free to download and can be highly effective promoting your release. DistroKid also offer mini videos, which are free, short, customizable videos incorporating your artwork and a short clip of your track. And if this wasn't enough, DistroKid also have a tool to create a Spotify canvas generator, which is the video that plays in the background when you're playing a song on Spotify. Simply choose a theme and choose from dozens of different creative artwork concepts. These are free to use and great for engaging your audience, available on DistroKid. For an additional subscription of $8.25 a month, you can get your music videos distributed to Apple Music, Vivo, and Tidal, and you'll keep 100% of your royalties. 
with DistroVid from DistroKid. Right, Dan, last question from me, because this is, again, we're already an hour and 20 minutes in. Um, I always like to ask every guest that comes on um, about a humbling experience, something that shaped them. Now, it could be anything, but normally I try and kind of ask if it was something that, I don't know if it was a mistake or something that you were embarrassed about or something that just really kind of knocked you down and you kind of were like, right, oh God, I don't even know if I want to still be doing like this as a career. Was there kind of a defining learning moment for you in your career that you kind of look back and you go, as, as shit as that was at the time, I'm glad it happened. There were there were the gigs so bad that I never went back to that venue again. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that counts. Um, you know, every disastrous gig, I probably learned something important that helped me to avoid getting in that situation the next time. So whether that was labelling your cables properly or, you know, laying out your cables neatly so that they're not in the way and they don't get trampled on. I mean, from a studio point of view, I learned to turn down certain sessions. The the clients who, who, who phone up and book an hour session and then end the call saying, you can make a beat for us, right? In an hour vocal tracking session, they expect you to write and produce all the music too. <clears throat> That's a red flag, you know, it's like, oh, I don't do that kind of thing anymore. But back when I had adverts out for my studio, I would get those kinds of sessions, you know, get those kind of calls. And you learned, you got sort of radar for that because it's just, you know, it's a waste of everyone's time. Disastrous mistakes. What about you mixing? Know. What about, was there any like mixes that you kind of like, you could maybe recall where you've sent a client and the client's really, really like not liked it and you've been like, oh crap. Like, uh, have there been like certain kind of mixes that you've had that you look back on and go, wow, that was, I made a big mistake in that or... I just you you look back at it and go oh, that's a terrible mix and like the maybe the things that you've learned from that I think every, every mixer <laughs> every mixer gets that as much as I know the pros w- won't like to admit some of the the terrible mixes that they've had released in the past but um, yeah was there any kind of mixing kind of experiences that you had I mean I learnt a lot from mixing my own music mm-hmm. really in terms of because because then you can't blame anyone else for any of it yeah <laughs> in that case. Um, can't blame the so arrangement. That, that, that's the thing with, with live sound. You know, when it was a bad gig, often it was because the band were terrible, you know, especially in the early days when you're just getting into it, you're in a little local venue dealing with local bands. You know, often it's not your fault that it sounds bad and you're trying to mitigate, you know, you're trying to make the best of a bad job rather than, and perhaps there were gigs where even a seasoned pro wouldn't have been able to, make sense of what was coming from from the stage and then there's other shows where the band are great and you know uh it's just easy <clears throat> and you know um knowing when it's a bad gig knowing how much of that was your fault and how much of it wasn't is sometimes difficult mm. you know it can be really disheartening after a bad show when you know whatever you did it just sounded awful Sometimes you know it's not your fault and you just made the best of it, but then there's always that nagging thing, you know, was there something I could have done to make it make it go smoother? Oh, the anxiety. Make it sound better. Still, yeah. ha- still haunts me about that. <laughs> there's, you know, there's some psychology involved sometimes. People skills, important, you know, especially if you're dealing with a band that hasn't got their stage sound together and, mm. 
you know, they're complaining that they can't hear themselves on stage and you need to find a good way of telling them that, you know, they can't hear the guitar because their guitar sound sucks. You know, they've sucked all the mid-range out of it. How do they expect to hear anything? Did you find there was a direct correlation between how fussy and deverish or demanding bands were to how good they were, and it usually went something like that? Yeah, uh, uh, often. <laughs> Give or take really, singers with egos. <laughs> it, you know, it, it's a it's a general rule of thumb, really, is, you know, if you're really on top of what you you know, if, if you're on top of everything, you're usually calm and collected. If you're if you're losing your shit, then you're probably not on top of everything. Um, mm. And you know that goes for the band as well. And you know, uh, just as much as with a a mix, you know, if I'm sent an arrangement to mix and I really struggle with it, it you know it's because the arrangement had problems. So you can sort of always shift the blame off elsewhere in that case you know and if a client's really unhappy with your mix you can tell yourself that they didn't really know what they want and mm-hmm. you know all that kind of stuff when it's your own music there's no you know so i i, I will listen back to some of the early stuff that i did and think oh my god how did i not hear hear that massive horrendous build up in the mid range there you know for example and and the answer is it was 25 years ago and i hadn't trained my ears mm. you know hadn't learned the craft simple as that and it yeah it 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 gets better with practice the advantage is these days it's pretty easy to equip yourself at home with the tools to you know practice on when i when i started out i didn't have anything at home i didn't have you know eqs and compressors i could play with and train my ears to hear what was going on i learned on the job you know with the band on stage possibly shouting at me uh, the hard way as it were but do you have any advice for young mix engineers trying to forge a career in this modern day and age? Uh, a lot yeah. of guys we've interviewed have done the classic story of being the T-boy, being the runner, miking things up, engineering stuff, tape hopping, then having an opportunity to mix or, you know, second mix and then lead mix and then careers have blossomed from there. But that's... You know, I was at Rack Studios the other week and they said there's a three-year waiting list just, wow. just to intern, just Fuck to be yeah. a T-boy. Yeah. Uh, Abbey Road, I don't think, take people on. I think they only take students through their own um, institute. No. So what advice do you have for, I mean, kind of like people like myself and Paul trying to forge a career, gain clients, become a become full-time mix engineers? Even with 20 years in live sound, there were no opportunities from that to break into the studio side of things whatsoever. I had to open a studio. That's how I got into it. Uh, I just took the leap and you know rented some space and bought some gear and you know got some Google ads and and dived in. Um, it's a gamble, probably not for everyone. That was the only way I managed to make the switch from live to the studio. So I can't comment on, you know, the traditional T-boy approach. Uh, you know, I, I feel like that was always a bit of a lottery win. Yeah, um, I agree. Get, getting one of those and probably even more so these days, you know, a lot of the a lot of the studios are shutting down, can't compete. So if you manage to get in that way, good luck to you. That's probably still the best way to do it. Failing that, I would probably suggest you get yourself the best home studio setup you can poss- possibly get and get yourself a portfolio, you know, do as much work as you possibly can, you know, do as many mixes as you can, get as good as you can. You know, if you can persuade other artists to let you mix their stuff, great. If you can make your own music, great. 
but just having something to play people will count for more than anything else, you know, yep. including professional qualifications, which aren't really recognised by anyone, no. to be honest. Um, I could testify to that. I could testify to that. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what you've described sounds exactly what Paul and I are doing, doesn't it, Paul? Yeah, I mean, uh, even, I mean, it's funny because everybody I've spoken to um, so far, when I've talked to, obviously I've got the studio, I've got the Art Moss room that's nearly fucking, near, everything's nearly finished. This is the only room that's finished. I've got the Art Moss room there, I've got the live room there. Um, I'm trying, I've got the vestibule area, I've got like a photography area up the back. And everybody I spoke to when I said, you know, what would be your advice, you know, for me, like trying to build like a, a whole purpose music studio. <laughs> Most of them went, don't do it. <laughs> just that's my advice, Paul. <laughs> just just don't do it. But um, I, I agree with Dan. I think it's one of these things where you've got to, there's got to be a point in your in your career where you take a leap of faith and you've got to put yourself out there. I think as much as YouTube's great for many people, I know when we had Vitsa on, he was, you know, telling us that a lot of his client base was coming from YouTube and that's been a, a little avenue that he's kind of benefited from. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, nobody in Scotland knows who I am. You know, that's what I find funny that me and Ed could go to, to Nam and like, oh my God, Paul Third, Paul Third, Paul Third. But I could go like down like uh, in the city centre of Dundee and not can <laughs> nobody knows who I am. Even musicians in Dundee don't know who I am. And, you know, I was... Not for the right reasons. Yeah, not for the right reasons. But, um, <laughs> you know, but I was speaking to many people and they were like, well, Paul, you need to get yourself out there. You need You need to let people know that you know, that you're out there and you're available and this is the services that you offer and here's my portfolio of work. And, you know, when the studio's complete, right, come down to the studio. Here's what I do. Here's some of the, the work that I've produced. And you've just got to put yourself out there. I think many people out there believe in social media will get them everywhere that they need to be. But at the end of the day, like, social media can only get you so far. Um, Google ads are great, again, if you're trying to get local uh, artists and people. But... At the end of the day, I think for me, what I've learned is that there needs to be collaboration. And I think that, you know, I need to get out of artists. I need to, you know, I've already been emailing and messaging a few local artists about doing a video talking all about, you know, microphone comparisons and trying to get them the right microphone for their voice and stuff. And hopefully that then leads to, you know, the word of mouth. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, Paul Third, you know, have you had Paul Third? No, he's got a studio like like tw 15 miles uh, outside of Dundee. And stuff like that so yeah i just think that it's um it's a very very difficult place to be in because there's so much competition even the pros that i'm built the pros um that i'm speaking to in the industry you know they're like telling me paul it's cutthroat it's like it's it's the labels are almost like not even that fussed about what they accept these days obviously you've got your your big guys your serbans and your spikes you know but a lot of labels are just like right just take it in yeah that'll do right and you know everybody's undercutting themselves you've got people on sound better and engineers like doing cheap 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 mixes and i think that's what we've got to be careful of is that we we never um like diminish the quality or dilute the quality of engineering i think what we've spoke about on in this episode is important because it's all about you know the psychology it's all about the craft you know you could sit there and you know, buy is a whole studio worth of analog gear and with a big massive console and yeah, it'll look great to clients and it'll make you look more professional. But at the end of the day, the proof's in the pudding and you've got to learn the craft. Everybody that I've spoken to in the industry has always said the same thing. Paul, you need to practice, 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 practice and with that practice, learn the craft. So kind of everything that Dan's talking about, 
It all comes from experience. It all comes from learning. And again, asking the questions of like, that didn't go right. Why did that not go right? And then figuring out how it didn't go right. And then in the future, you've got that in your back pocket. Um, so yeah, there you go. There's a lot of ramble for you, but I'd say there we go. I'd say that's how I'd like to end this podcast. Um, I always try and end the podcast on a on not very somber notes and <laughs> it's depressing and everybody's cutting each other's throats and nobody's going to get a career in audio. <laughs> as possible yeah. but just... well uh, the important thing to remember about mixing music you know it's a service industry mm-hmm. and the job is to make the client happy yeah, at the end of the 100%. day and uh you know uh, so not every mix that you do is necessarily going to be one that you want on your portfolio mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, whether or not you're massively proud of the mix is secondary to whether or not the client is happy with it. Yeah. You know, if you've managed to make it sound a million times better than their rough mix did and they're happy to pay your invoice, then you've won. You know, yeah. bank it, move on to the next mix. Maybe that one will be one that you want on your on your resume. At the end of the day, if the client is happy, they'll recommend you to someone else. You'll get more work yeah. and that's how you progress. Um, so... Yeah, just, uh, I mean, that's that's the thing these days, you know, it cuts both ways. The traditional route into studios is diminishing from the small, tiny, you know, mm-hmm. uh, shoot that it was. But also there are opportunities now to set up your home studio and work through whether it's sound better or fiber or whatever mm-hmm. it is, you know what I mean? Um, and if you're doing good work, you know, you'll get hired again and it's perfectly feasible. So... In some ways, the opportunities have diminished, but in probably more ways, they've increased, you know. And and there are so many artists now releasing their own stuff independently. Yeah. But, you know, they may have the skills to record themselves, but may well not have the skills to mix themselves. And at some point, they're going to realise that. And, you know, maybe you're the guy they'll hire to help them out. But, yeah, it's a service industry. At the end of the day, aim to keep your clients happy and then you'll get recommendations and that's always the best way. I think personal recommendation counts more than any number of Google adverts or social media posts. Absolutely. Yep. On that bombshell, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Working Audio Tools. Big thank you, Dan Worrell, for joining us from uh, sunny Sheffield. Thanks to my affable co-host, Paul Third, providing some uh, pearls of wisdom, as always. And thank you to our uh, sponsors distro kid for all of your musical distribution needs uh the service that in fact all three of us use to promote and distribute our own original music there is a 30 percent discount code in the show notes of the podcast and also the youtube video description where you can of course watch this uh not live some editing (laughs) some (laughs) in a couple of weeks after we've filmed it right on that bombshell it's been emotional from me paul you can sign off as always Short and sweet. I'm joking. He's going to waffle for ages. See you later.